0: so you you just say okay in my own private investment project i did all my calculations with a price of i don't know a hundred a hundred dollars per unit of output but now i find that when i sell at a hundred dollars of unit of output per unit of output if i sell at that i have a return of five percent and that's not enough so i need the return of let's say eight percent so what do i have to do well i just raise my price to let's say 105 dollars per unit of output Okay, so I know that demand is high, and that people will be able to afford it. Because I hike up the price, I lose some buyers, not all of them, but some, which is okay, I still have a, a nice return. So that means if you, if you follow this line of thought, you will understand that, that an increase in the interest rate will not lead to private investment being lower. They will not shelve those projects, they will just increase the price.
1: Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Dirk Entz. Last week in part one, Dirk described his journey from a PhD in mainstream economics to discovering and accepting MNT. Today, I ask Dirk questions circling around his new co-authored piece for the Gower Initiative called Raising Interest Rates is Like Blowing Up the Garden to Weed It. It starts with some very basic questions about how and why The central bank maintains the stability of the payment system i then ask the specific mechanics of the central bank's raising its overnight target rate and how it ultimately results in millions more becoming unemployed and therefore more exploitable i continue to struggle with these concepts but after this conversation i feel like the questions have become more clear if you like what you hear then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, like in last week's episode with Dirk, my previous interview with John Harvey, and my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to Patreon.com/ActivistMNT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Dirk Ents. Enjoy.
0: have like a commonwealth of European nations and then we can keep the euro but let's make sure that the liquidity and solvency are always insured so let's have this kind of pandemic emergency purchase program back and these we will guarantee more or less that all these governments can always spend money you could introduce full employment targets for example which is the suggestion that I made in a paper last year so yeah there's, there's lots of things that could be done from an MMT perspective um, but I would say the most important thing is that the eurozone has already understood MMT and they understood that in a crisis you have to get rid of the deficit limits and you have to have this kind of bond purchase program. So I think in April 2020 I wrote an article on in Brave New Europe where I said that, that the eurozone has understood MMT and that we will not have a eurozone crisis this time. And I mean, yeah, that, that was correct. I think that's the correct, correct view. But I mean, it's again, we're still in the middle of the river. We still need to rethink do we want to go ahead and have a federal Europe or do we want to go back to nation states and uh, maybe we could dissolve the Euro in the future at some point, if, if that is somehow a good idea. But right now, again, these discussions are, are off limits. Okay.
1: Um, okay. All right. Thank you. So I have, a, I have a whole bunch of questions for you. So we're going to discuss uh, basically inflation and monetary policy and uh, all these questions going forward are going to be circling around your article, your GIMS article. Raising interest rates is like blowing up the garden to weed it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. So I want to start off by uh, really basic questions. Um, I've always struggled to get my head around interest rates and their, their specific effects. And I'd like to, I'd like to start by asking this question. So... Only the central bank can supply reserves to commercial banks. They will supply reserves that the banking system needs because if they don't, the system will collapse. Uh, so my first question is, Is what if they don't? What is the nature? I mean, the, the central banks, the job of the central bank is to you know, preserve the payment system. That's something like that. Uh, what is the potential collapse if they don't do that. What is the what is the end game that if they if the if the banks are not supplied the reserves that they need in order to transact between each other, just just I mean I know it's uh, it's pretty soon chaos. But but what is the actual nature of that collapse if that doesn't happen? If the if the integrity of the payment system is not properly maintained, like they can't exchange Banks can't exchange money between themselves, which means that people start lose stop trusting something. Something. Can can you can you address that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, central banks historically have have two tasks. Uh, number one, making payments for the government, and number two, maintaining the the payment system. And maintaining the payment system means that all the banks who are participating should be able to to borrow the amount of of reserves that they need to conduct their business. Um, They need these reserves because people want to have cash. So you can always uh, swap reserves with cash at the central bank. They will send you an armored cow or an armored lorry with the cash. And then you, of course, need, as you already said in the question, you need money as a bank, like reserves, um, to make payments to other banks. Okay, so if if I'm a bank and one of my clients is making a transfer to another bank, I as a bank need central bank money to clear. If the other bank uh, does not, it's not okay with a postponement of the payment. Okay, so what we could do is we could also write that up and say, look, I, I owe you a million because one of my clients transferred a million to a client of your bank. If, if that's possible, we don't need central bank money for clearing purposes. But at some point, this this will not be be working. Okay, so after a lot of back and forth, at some point, banks will go into clearing. And if those banks who need central, central bank money for clearing purposes or for making transformations into cash... If they don't get that kind of money because the central banks say, sorry, the collateral rules are now very strict and you don't have the collateral to borrow from me anymore. And the other banks say, well, this looks like a bank which does not have enough collateral, so we don't want to lend to it because it will not repay, probably. And that means that you get these two effects. So number one, some bank transfers will blow up. So um, the bank will tell some of its clients, sorry, your, your bank transfer didn't work out. Okay, This will, of course, harm the real economy because, um, because your goods and services will not be paid. And then probably the company which was selling these goods and services says, we want them back because you didn't pay me. And that, of course, can, can mean that if, these are, if this is about intermediate goods, you can, you can stop the production process at a car factory, for example. And also people will be queuing up on the ATMs because they, they think that they will not deliver as much cash as they, they want. So you, you get a full blown bank run at some point. And that's why it's very important that the central bank runs the payment system smoothly and it adjusts also the collateral requirements if, if we have bad times and the collateral is, is bad because because that's what it is.
1: Okay. So so there would be a run on the bank and, and, and people would stop using that bank. They would they would transfer to other banks, but, but the trust the trust in the system would like rapidly decay. So, I mean, it really would be chaos. Well, basically. it would
0: be a question of, of what is the cause for these kind of, of things. So, for instance, in the 1970s, there was a strike uh, in the banking sector in Ireland. Okay, so the banks wouldn't open for, for many weeks. <laughs> and people, of course, they, they couldn't get any more cash because they, they just closed down. In the 70s, there were no ATMs. So, back in the 70s, if you wanted cash, you, you went to the bank and you, you got cash. But all the banks were closed for weeks and weeks. So um what did the Irish do? didn't uh, did they not trust their money anymore? Well they, they wrote their balances up at the pub. okay so if you if you bought something from somebody else, you went to the pub and you put some piece of paper somewhere saying I owe you I don't know 50 pounds um, mm-hmm. and if that other person would pay you 20 pounds uh, for for or would, would owe you 20 pounds because you you did something for that person then you would net it out. And say, okay, now I now owe you 30 pounds. So so there are historical instances where, where the banking system did not work, but people do not panic like an island in the 1970s. So it's of course a completely different thing if you if you look at some I don't know, some country which already is in hyperinflation and then things go wrong like this, then of course this kind of, of problem can can really go big and, and create a lot of trouble. But what should happen is that the politicians should be calling the central bank and saying look you're creating trouble here okay it's your it's your uh, duty to guard the financial stability of our monetary system so please um, reduce your collateral requirements and make sure that that all the banks are liquid enough i mean buy their government bonds or buy their their assets whatever they have bonds um, private bonds public bonds real estate make sure that those banks are liquid you're creating a crisis, and politically, we don't want to have that. Okay, so we don't need a financial crisis. So I, I think that politically, there's lots of institutions which would stop uh, it, a financial crisis from from developing at f- at full scale and bank runs and all of this occurring um, because because we we know how to fix this. Okay, it's it's all back in this book of um, of the, about the lender of last resort. Um, I, I forgot the title of that book. Um, maybe when, it, when it comes back to me, I will tell you later.
1: Okay. Um, you know what this actually evokes is we, we were going to talk about crypto, but it's just too much. <laughs> it's just too much. But actually what it evokes is there has to be a central authority to clear payments. There has to be. So with crypto, with Bitcoin, there is a, there is a blockchain, which is the centralized, authority is not the right word, but a centralized system. And the central bank is the central authority for the banking system within the country. What, what a major difference that i just i recently learned about is that a crime in the real world can be undone for example credit card companies regularly give you your money back that you know generally credit card companies stand with you if you you know if you report uh, a bad you know purchase or whatever. They will give you your money back and they will they will prosecute that person. That that generally works well and that's an example of a justice system in a central banking system where they keep accounts, they keep track of everything and so they can they can undo a transaction in order to make you whole. In the crypto universe where there is no social control of the blockchain, it's hard coded. There is no justice. So a crime in the real world can be undone or given justice. A crime in the crypto world cannot be undone. It's permanent. I find that fascinating. Yep. Yeah.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the the monetary system is something which which we have created politically and um, of course we have some some I think Jakob Feine calls it some some ideas of a moral economy. And it's kind of part of this idea of, of justice also that if we make a payment and then somebody does not deliver goods and services, then of course we can somehow get the money back, and and that the banks somehow also if we make a mistake, for example, and transfer the money to the wrong account because we 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 swap two numbers with the account number, um, that that this should be undone. Um, mm. So I I mistakes, think that's,
1: yeah, genuine mistakes. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a lot of um, there's a lot of it's a good idea to have a central bank and to have, have human-made rules and not automatized, automatic rules somehow because you will always have these discretionary decisions about, about political stuff. I mean, p- people make mistakes and, and there's, there's going to be a lot of mistakes in the future that we, we can't even think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we can't even imagine, but we need to react to those things. So the worst would be to have a fully automated monetary system that we could never change again. That's, that's a very bad idea. Hmm.
1: You're actually reminding me of a story that Warren Moser tells, which is the bank actually accidentally, the I guess the central bank or some major institution accidentally gave his company three hundred million dollars when it should have been like thirty thousand dollars or something like that. And so that's another that's another example of you know that kind of thing can't be undone when there's just a computer in control. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Next question. So the central bank, again, the central bank is the only institution that can supply reserves to commercial banks, which they need for uh, transacting with each other. The central bank will supply reserves needed by the banking system because if they don't, the system will collapse. This doesn't, however, mean that commercial banks are in charge. It kind of can give the appearance that commercial banks are in charge because they will get reserves on demand. An analogy to this is how only parents can supply food to their children. If parents want their children to survive and thrive and the parents don't want to go to jail and whatever, have a happy family, they will provide food to their children as the children demand it. But this implies a power struggle because as parents of young kids, both of us, our, parent, our, our kids whine about starving when what they really mean is that they want to treat, mm-hmm. so you know their their dinner belly is full, but there's still plenty of room in their ice cream belly. So it comes down to you and I as parents, and the central bank with the with the banking system ha- have to decide when the when they are satiated with reserves or or parents with food and their kids. So it, it ultimately. There is some kind of a power struggle. I mean, it, that seems very clear with with the parenting situation, and I wonder if there is an analogous power struggle of this sense with, between the central bank and commercial banks. And you know, what's something that blows up this analogy is that the banks have basically overtaken the central bank and the government as a whole. So that's different than comparing to normal families. But can you talk about the the general analogy of Banks supply reserves to the commercial ba- commercial banks, but that doesn't mean that commercial banks are in charge, uh, and uh, and this power struggle as well. Can you can you
0: t- uh, do I have that right? And can can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think you have that right. Um, I mean, the central bank has has a lot of, of power because, as you say, using your analogy, it's the central bank is feeding the banks reserves. <laughs> okay, they the banks need those; they need to eat those. Um, and, of course, it's the question of quantity and price. Okay, so banks would be very happy to borrow reserves at zero cost, so zero interest rates on on the one hand. But they also would be very happy to have the right quantity of reserves, so whatever they need. Okay, so the central banks have to supply the quantity of, of reserves that, that the banks did not demand in order not to blow up the payment system. But price is, is more complicated because a lot of loans given to the private sector are, are priced on top of the interest rate that we have in the interbank market. So often um, private loans have a clause which says if they have a flexible ex- interest rate, interest rate is, I don't know, Fed funds rate plus 3%, just just as an example. So if the Fed funds rate goes up, then banks make more money. Okay, so so the central bank is, is more powerful than the banking system because the central bank can survive without giving reserves to the banks. And it knows that the banks will have to come to the central bank to get those reserves because, as you correctly said, the central bank is the only institution that can create those reserves. So Warren Mosler always likes to stress that, that the commercial banks are also agents of the state because they have a state charter, all of them. Uh, you cannot just create a bank and then start making loans. Um, they're all chartered. And I agree, agree with that. So, so the banks, they would like to have more power, and they try to get that power by, by, well, through political movements, um, lobbies, and and all these kind of things. Like, also with academia, they have lots of of people in academia that they are they are inviting to their conferences and inviting to talk. So, there's, there's, they have a lot of influence. So, it's it's not all lobbyism and it's not all bad in a way but, but they have their lobby, I guess. So, well, I mean, it, it was very transparent in the last global financial crisis. When, for example, I think there was an economist from New York, from Columbia, I think it was who got paid $120,000. If I remember correctly from, from somebody in Iceland to write a report on the stability of, of the Icelandic monetary system. <laughs> um, and, uh, a in- Let me guess. he found it incredibly stable. Yeah, was yeah. That was the result. And <laughs> as as long as you have economists like this giving giving their opinions, so it's it's all free speech and opinions. <laughs> okay, um, then of course there's 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 a problem. Okay, um, yeah. So the central banks, they they are political animals, and of course the the politicians, if they wanted to, they can put somebody in charge. Who's who's regulating the banks and who says it's part of my job to regulate the banks? But um, the financial sector normally goes after these kind of of policymakers, just like with Umarova in the U.S., for example. They, they the financial lobby stopped her from from moving into a position of power. So yeah, you are you are correct. It's it's a power game that is happening there, and it's the central bank and the banks which are involved. And in Europe, for example, we had Mario Draghi, who came from Goldman Sachs. Now we have Christine Lagarde, who was at the French Treasury, for example. So, so everything is always political. So, so don't don't think that somehow central banks are politically independent. No, they are part of this power struggle in society, just as as all the other institutions. Okay.
1: Um, okay. So, I read. Uh, okay. Next question. Thank you. I read the 2019 paper by Warren Moser and Phil Armstrong called A Discussion of Central Bank Operations and Interest Rate Policy. Here's a quote from it. Central bankers believe raising rates works to to reduce inflationary pressures by reducing aggregate demand, and lowering rates works to support aggregate demand and increase inflationary pressures. So the real world consequences of raising interest rates is to unemploy people, to to cause a recession, I think is the way to say it. You cause a recession by disemploying people, by lowering, by uh, increasing the costs to businesses, so that the I, I'm not exactly sure. So, but the real world solution is for to uh, to disemploy people, to make them more to keep, to keep them exploitable. As you describe in your in your new post, raising interest rates is like bombing your garden in order in order to get rid of the weeds. And it's you know in a way that I've often said it is it's like using a nuclear bomb to kill a mosquito. Yeah, it works, but is it really worth it? Can you describe the mechanics of of raising interest rates? Because there's a lot of steps between their choice to raise it and people becoming unemployed. Can you just can you just basically describe the mechanics of how interest rates work and 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 the path that it leads to becoming unemployed. That was completely all over the place, but I actually, it's kind of representative of the struggle of my trying to understand of how actually interest rate or target rate changes actually affect the economy.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, So let's talk about transmission channels of monetary policy. Um, Why not start at the beginning? Okay, so Knut Vicksell is Swedish economist from the 19th century. He wrote a book in 1898 called Interest and Prices. And he was the first, I think, who, who clearly had this idea that if you increase interest rates, then there would be less demand for, for goods and services because investment projects would not be, uh, would, would go down. So the idea was that if you have an investment project and it would pay you 5%, for example, a year, then you would, you would finance this if the interest rate by the central bank or by your bank would be 3%, right? So you pay 3% to your bank, you get 5% from your investment. Well, if the interest rate starts to increase and you're reaching 5%, you would stop making this private investment because you would pay 5% to the bank and you would have 5% which you get from your investment project, so you would gain zero. So, so the Excel's idea was that if you increase the interest rate, then private investment would be falling. And this was argued in the neoclassical framework of scarcity, Okay, So what what Vixel in the end said is, look, if you have have a central bank interest rate, or or you will have a central bank interest rate, if you pick it correctly, which will deliver an inflation rate of zero, Okay, So he understood that, that. that lack of demand is normally the problem in the economy and that you have to fill this gap, okay? So there's a lack of demand. So so firms are producing stuff, goods and services, and they cannot sell all of them because people don't have enough money. So Wixell says, well, if private investment creates more incomes for workers, then these people with those incomes can buy what they otherwise could not sell, okay? And of course, back in the 19th century, nation-states were small, okay, so in small in terms of the budget. So I, I assume that the budget of the federal government in the U.S. around 1900 was maybe 1% or 2% of GDP, and the same in all the Western European countries, okay? So the idea that somehow the government, through variations of its spending, could affect the whole economy, it was completely off-limits because the government was just too small, okay? So so Vixell was the first one to, to create this kind of tr- transmission channel and um, shortly before he died, he was, he was receiving his festschrift, so a, a book with a lot of articles praising his work. And I think Bertil Olin wrote in an article about this instance and said that Vixel in the end, kind of disassociated himself from this so-called natural rate of interest. Okay, So he thought for a while that the central bank could hit the natural rate of interest And if it puts the interest rate there, then private investment would just fill in the gap so that you get a zero inflation rate. That's the idea of of using the interest rate to steer the economy. And that was picked up again in 2003 in a book by Michael Woodford, The New Keynesians. So they, they wrote that you can use the interest rate to steer the economy using the same kind of transmission channel. Okay, so you have some kind of yeah, you have some kind of inflation problem. Well, you just increase the interest rate, private investment will fall, and that means that the, the demand will, will be lower, and then it will be adjusted to the to the supply, so that it's a de- sub- supply-demand story. And of course, this is this is not a new Keynesian idea, this should be an anti-Keynesian idea. Okay, because John Maynard Keynes, in his in his uh, general theory, he wrote about this. Okay, so he read the Excel. And he, he read the, the 1898 book. And then in its general theory, um, I have the quote somewhere, just let me look for it. Um, here it is. Okay, so he, he wrote in his general theory, in my treatise on money, I defined what purported to be a unique rate of interest, which I called the natural rate of interest, namely the rate of interest, which in the terminology of my treatise, preserved equality between the rate of saving, as I defined, and the rate of investment. I believe this to be a development and clarification of Vixell's natural rate of interest, which was, according to him, the rate which would preserve the stability of some not quite quite clearly specified price level. And here it comes, uh, two paragraphs down. I am no longer of the opinion that the concept of a natural rate of interest, which previously seemed to me a most promising idea, has anything very useful or significant to contribute to our analysis. It is merely the rate of interest which will preserve the status quo, and in general, we have no predominant interest in the status quo as such. Okay, so what John Maynard Keynes is saying here is that look, for every for every level of government spending, you will have one interest rate which leads to a level of private investment that leads to a level of interest of, of inflation of zero. Okay, so if you have, for example, if you have high government spending, well, you can then have a zero interest rate, or sorry, you should then have a high interest rate because you need less. Private investment, because demand is already very high. So, so Keynes recognized that that it's the state, so it's the government spending which is more important than monetary policy. Okay, um, and that's why the new Keynesians—it's—it's it's a complete joke that their name, they are name—they name themselves the new Keynesians because Keynes refuted their main idea in the General Theory. Okay, so, so now we have figured out the theoretical case according to central bank doctrine, inflation targeting, this is called. And what's the MMT view? Well, the MMT view is that if you increase interest rates, well, there are some companies which will then notice that for their private investment projects that the costs are now higher because, well, interest rates have gone up. But what would you do if you would be running that company? Well, There's a lot of demand for your product, right? And then the the bank says, sorry, um, we can only finance your your private investment project at 5% of an interest rate, not at 3%. So what do you do? So your return on the investment project is 5% and you borrow at 5%. Well, there's one price you can influence and one price you cannot influence. Well, the 5% that you pay to the bank, you cannot influence that. Okay, you can try to haggle and negotiate, but if the bank says 5% is what we want for a loan, that will be that. But can you influence the rate of return on your investment project? Well, of course you can. You can increase the price. Okay, so it's very easy. So you, you just say, okay, in my own private investment project, I did all my calculations with a price of, I don't know, $100 hundred per unit of output. But now I find that when I sell at $100 of unit of unit output per unit of output, if I sell at that, I have a return of 5% and that's not enough. So I need the return of, let's say, 8%. So what do I have to do? Well, I just raise my price to, let's say, $105 per unit of output. Okay. So I know that demand is high and that people will be able to afford it. Because I hike up the price, I lose some buyers, not all of them, but some, which is okay. I still have a, a nice return. So that means if you, if you follow this line of thought, you will understand that, That an increase in the interest rate will not lead to private investment being lower. They will not shelf those projects. They will just increase the price. more, Ah, Yeah. So keep going, keep going. Okay. There's a little bit of a more complicated argument, which is, I think, Warren Moser developed that. Who said that if interest rates go up, then, of course, you would have to have prices going up because interest rates are a cost to business. Okay. So just as I argued that if, if my interest rates go up, I I just increase my prices. And I think there's another asset view um, that if you have interest rates going up, let's say instead of 0% for a risk-free government bond, you now have 5% for a risk-free government bond. Well, then of course the private companies need to increase their profits. Otherwise nobody will want to hold their, their bonds. Okay. So how do you increase profits if you are a private company? You cannot change costs in the short term. You have to hike up prices. That's how you would react to, to an increase in the interest rate. Okay, so the MMT view is that higher interest rates add to demand because of these two effects that I've just been talking about. And then there's the search of transmission channel, which works via government bonds. So if you have public debt of, let's say, between 50 or, yeah, let's say at least 50% of GDP, then, of course, the, the bondholders will now get interest rate, which is higher, and they can spend that. They will not spend all of it, but they will spend part of their interest income anyway. And that means that in a high interest rate increases the government spending to a, to a new level, to a higher level than before. So, so interest rate payments are part of... of what Keynes used to call deficit spending I just call it government spending because whether it's a deficit or not you don't know that at the time that you are spending so so let's leave that for later right okay so so the, um, looking at these three channels we would then argue that higher interest rates are expansionary they increase prices and they also increase demand okay and I agree with this view and also I mean in, in the end it's an empirical question so empirically, when, for example, the Federal Reserve Bank starts increasing interest rates, what happens then after two or three years? Do you have a higher inflation rate than, than before? So when they started raising rates for the first time, or is it lower? And I think in the last three business cycles, the 2010s, but also the, the 2000s before the uh, real estate bubble burst, and also the 1990s, the dot-com boom, whenever the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, they had inflation rates coming up and not down. Okay, That happened over the last three business cycles. So it's very unlikely that when you start raising rates right now, that inflation rates will come down anytime soon. Okay, What, what is more likely is the following thing. You drive prices up because of interest rates being a cost to business, because more demand through this interest rate channel because of the public debt. Well, when prices go up, at existing tax rates, the tax income, the tax revenue of the government will go up, but they won't spend more, right? Because they fix that in their budget. So so higher interest rates act as a drain. So it drains purchasing power from the private sector because of higher tax payments. And that's like playing Monopoly. And whenever you, you uh, hit the, uh, what, what's the, the, is it called Go in English? The, the first field? Yeah. yeah. So whenever code, you no? hit Go, you have to pay the bank instead of receiving money. Okay, so mm. then you have a monetary circulation or an economic circuit where money' is taking out of circulation every time you you pass the go uh, key field. of course your your private market will collapse at some point because there was less and less purchasing power and I believe that that in the end, the collapse of the economy will come through this kind of effect okay it It won't be the channel that Vixel identified it will be the the m m t identified channel. Which is increasing demand until tax revenues drain away so much purchasing power from the private sector that that it will blow up. So, of course, the the newspaper article it was it was roughly I think five thousand what was it five thousand letters I think. So there was no time to explain MMT and all these things. So we just assumed. If the central bank is right and their increase in interest rates at some point causes a recession and more unemployment, blowing up the garden, right? So so if they think this is what will happen, is it really a good idea? And that's why the paper, even though it was it was written by MMT authors or at least people who understand MMT, it's um, it's I admit it's a little bit unclear, but you have to make those compromises. So the point of this article is to say that economic policy in this instance so mon- using monetary policy to fight inflation means creating unemployment deliberately to shrink demand okay because that's what they want to do that's what the central banks believe that they are doing That it doesn't work that way it's it, yeah we all know about it but we wanted to explain to the public in sweden that it's not a good idea to use monetary policy to address the supply side problem of higher energy prices that was the main mm-hmm. point and yeah again mm-hmm. We have these short articles sometimes to publish for newspapers and then we have to compromise and some things are left out, which are maybe important, but we can write about this in the future now that we have one article in there. Hopefully it looks good in the future and then they will come back to us to ask us other questions about other topics and that's why we did
1: Okay. All right. So let me see if I can very vaguely say, I, I think I have a little bit more of an understanding and let me see if I can like, if I can say it back raising the target rate raises the interest that is paid to the central bank for reserves for borrowing yes. from the central bank which in turn which in turn is passed on to customers from of commercial banks who want to borrow from commercial banks yep. which businesses Businesses borrow from commercial banks in order to invest, which is defined in this context as physical investment—building, building, comp, building ma- machinery and, and factories and whatever—and so they are driven ultimately by demand for their products. Yeah. So the interest rate is not going to change immediately, anyway. The demand for their products. So since now the costs of investing of of creating new companies and, and buildings and and uh, equipment and whatever machinery has now gone up they're going to pass on that cost to wages to prices so to customers so they to they're going to pass on those costs to lesser powerful figures
0: which are their customers and their workers and wait, so wait a sec um so so the one thing that the companies do and that's a very logical reaction uh, also they, they just say okay so if, if my costs increase and I don't care about which part of, of my costs I'm talking about here I just pass it on through higher prices okay so of course when when firms increase prices then of course we as workers have less less purchasing power right and, and but that's the main effect okay so of course the the companies would like to lower wages but normally they don't try that especially not in Scandinavia because because of, of the way that things work like there. Um, So Scandinavia is a very unionized country, and they have this idea that that employers and and workers are in contact with each other, and they find solutions to problems together. It's not like in the US, where you can hire and fire, and you try to push down wages until you reach the minimum wage. That's not going to be a solution in, in the Scandinavian countries. So there, if the countries face higher costs, they just roll it over and say, okay, we increase price. Okay, that's, so they indirectly affect wages by increasing prices. Yeah, and and we of course notice that our, our purchasing power, power goes down, but for the firms, it's it's socially it's more it's easier socially to raise prices than to to cut nominal wages.
1: Okay, and then so so to continue from there, so they cut they they increase prices, which has to affect demand. Well, of course it affects it affects demands because the real wage of workers and people goes down because prices have gone up so demand decreases which de- decreases which results in
0: some workers being let go
1: is that the correct chain of events roughly
0: yeah but but it, it will take a lot of time until this has played out okay so because because we started being in a boom okay so normally if you have inflation it's because you have a lot of aggregate demand okay so so when when prices are increased, and the inflation, of course, means that prices are increased, it will take a long time until you reach this point where, where tax revenues goes up. Okay, So, so de- demand is normally strong, um, but demand is then going less and less strong because, because people pay more, more and more taxes, because the economy is booming. So you went from, from boom directly to bust, but it takes a couple of years for this transition to happen. That's my point.
1: Taxes are affected. I, I, I'm i missing the one piece of how taxes fit into this. So taxes are automatically calculated based on, I mean, whatever, they're automated. The, the amount of taxation is automated. So when the economy goes down, taxes, tax revenue goes down. Yes. And yeah, tax revenue goes down when demand goes down, when the economy slows down and you know uh what do you call it uh, the the automatic payments of like social security and food stamps and whatever that automatically goes up i forget there's a term what stabilizes the, yeah so that automatically goes up um but i'm not i'm not i don't i'm missing how
0: taxation fi- okay because it's it's simply because well, of demand the, the the automatic stabilizers they work both ways okay so you explain them to me in the downside okay you're saying that if demand is weak then of course um, you will have less tax revenues because less stuff is sold. Okay. So if you have VAT, for example, and you have very little business, and then, then you can expect very little tax revenue, but what ha- happens with the same kind of logic, if aggregate demand is way beyond the average of, of aggregate demand. Okay. Then of course you will have high tax revenues. Okay. So in, in good times in boom times, the government takes away a lot of purchasing power from the private sector right.
1: ah, okay. okay okay
0: also because prices are rising you are selling more stuff quantity goes up so you collect more vat because you are you are selling more stuff but also prices go up okay and, that, and vat is of course it's a function of price so if if inflation goes up then also bo- then also tax revenues go up And that's what's driving the economy into a surplus economy for the private sector. So Bill Clinton, for example, in the late 1990s, he got those surpluses because of the dot-com boom. He didn't change tax rates. He didn't say, I want to have a a surplus. It's just that the economy was booming, inflation picked up, and then re-growth picked up as well. So more stuff was sold at higher prices, and that meant that tax revenues were, were going up Quite, by quite a lot. And, and in the Clinton years, they even had a surplus. In the last two business cycles um, in the boom, at the end of the boom, there was still a deficit, but it was a, a lesser deficit than before. And of course, that is also, it's the same effect. Okay, so you have a lower deficit also means that there's less net injection by the government.
1: Okay, so so taxation fits into this story. So demand starts to go, the prices go up Which brings demand down, which brings taxation down, which lowers
0: taxation, right? No, no, wait. wait. So higher demand, oh, sorry, wait. Higher prices lead to more revenues, more tax revenues, and that that drains money from from the private sector. Okay, that leads to less aggregate demand in the future.
1: Higher prices,
0: yeah, means higher bond, higher tax revenues.
1: Means higher tax revenues, but it also means lower demand. So eventually, it it lowers yes. demand. Yeah, and eventually, it lowers taxation. But in the beginning, it raises taxation.
0: Yeah, is because that right? of, because the government is taxing taxing more and more of your income away. Um, that's what's driving aggregate demand down. Okay, because aggregate demand is is nominal. Okay, so so workers have I don't know, a uh, hundred billion to spend, and then in the next year, one hundred and two billion. But the problem is that, that they pay higher and higher taxes, and that's draining the money away. In many way, okay. Whatever price, right. you, that's that's a point.
1: Okay, all right, all right. I, I have, I feel like I, I have a a vague increase in understanding, but I have just way too many questions. Um, so, okay. In your article, you have a quote, uh, and uh, regarding Germany, it says. Germany is an interesting example. Their citizens can buy tickets for the national public transport system, everything except long-distance trains, for just about 100 crowns, which is around eight pounds sterling, a month for the summer. This fills empty trains and encourages people to park their cars, reducing energy consumption. So, you know, this is a, a great, obvious gesture to to do what's best uh, for the people and for the environment and for you know climate change and so on. Um, In uh, the Germany is the is not a currency issuer. They're part of the euro, but they're the most powerful country in the euro in the eurozone. I think that's correct.
0: Um, So let me interrupt you at that point. Um, Germany is a currency issuer. Okay, it's just that it shares the currency with a lot of other countries. But the Mm. central bank, as part of the euro system, can create as as many euros as it can legally create. So it's just like the Federal Reserve Bank. It's a currency issuer. And Christine Lagarde said as much in an article with Reuters and even used this word, I think, as or this phrase of currency issuer. And she said that the euro system as a whole can generate liquidity as much as needed, which is central bank speak for saying that, that of course, all the central banks can create money, uh, euros, on, on their accounts with, with the banks. So... The strange situation that we have now in the Eurozone is is that we, we are in a situation where we still have the Euro, of course, but all the national governments with their central banks together can create as much as they, as they need. Okay, so that is, that is where we are right now. So normally what, what would limit this situation is the the deficits uh, the deficit limit, which is from the stability and growth pact. So that's, that's the baddie here. Okay, so if you would introduce a stability and growth pact also in the U.S., for example, and say if your government deficit is more than 3%, you are forced to cut government spending, well, you would still have a sovereign currency, and the U.S. federal government would be a currency issuer, or the Fed would be, but you would have the same problem, right? Also, Sweden is an example. Sweden has its own currency. The Riksbank, the Swedish central bank, clearly is a currency issuer, but they have a fiscal rule which says that the government at normal times has to have a surplus of one percent of GDP. That's even worse than in the eurozone. Okay, so where would you rather be in the eurozone right now, with deficit limits off and the ECB supportive by by bond purchasing programs, or in Sweden, where normal times you have to have a surplus of one percent of GDP?
1: Um, okay, yeah, of course, sure. Of course, the Germany is a currency issuer, but they are they are what do you call it? They they're not totally. Independent in their decision making, they are they are they, ha- they are beholden to the, the the European Central Bank, but in that relationship, they are the most
0: powerful partner, right? Yeah, but the the problem is that the, the the rules in the eurozone are in flux. Okay, so so it's all about the fiscal framework. So, do you restrict national governments when they spend? Question mark. And the answer used to be yes. Uh, and how do you do that? Not by putting some kind of cap on government spending, which you could have done anyway. But what they did is they used these kind of deficit numbers, okay, the 3% number, which was coming from Sankov. I mean, it was invented by some, some French bureaucrat from the Ministry of Finance, who just came up with the number because it's it's uh, far away From the 2.1% that the Mitterrand government had at that time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But it sounded like a serious number. So (laughs) it it was just an invention by a bureaucrat. But right now, with the deficit limits off and the the ECB supportive, there's nothing. I mean, we don't have a fixed exchange rate, for example. So there's nothing that would stop Italy right now from increasing government spending by 100 billion euros. Okay, there's nothing to, I mean, it could, it could, it can always do it the problem is do you have the fiscal um procedures in place to to punish that country so even with the euro stability and growth pact intact the italian government could increase government spending by 100 billion which is quite a lot by the way it should be almost maybe it's almost doubling the the or, or maybe adding 50% to the government spending in in italy so so these are significant numbers so what is limited is not the amount of government spending. The Bank of Italy can always create any amount of spending for the Italian government because it is a currency issuer. The Italian central bank does not have to borrow or finance somehow the money that it spends on behalf of the Italian government. Okay, So, so these central banks, they are all currency issuers. And, and what is the problem in the eurozone then are these, these fiscal rules And that's what we are working on. So it's really a strange situation right now because it is just as if these countries would would have their old currencies back. There's no limit. And I mean, that's why Italy and Spain and other countries with their progressive governments, um, they are using this kind of of setup now to increase government spending because they have lots of unemployment. So why not use uh, government spending as a cure for this kind of unemployment? And, and that's, of course, the, the rules go back to normal in 2000. Let me see, 2024. Okay, so that's that's a year and a half from here. But the fiscal rules will be reformed between between then and now. Um, so the, the euro is a very flexible arrangement, and people haven't appreciated it as much as they should have because this, this currency issuer part is, is, has always been with us. So, so you can easily revert back to, to full currency issuer capability.
1: All right. So I think that that was my question, which you largely answered, which is like what basically what's the difference between Germany doing something like this, which, you know, kind of a, a very progressive policy, a very, you know, uh, I'll say bold policy. I'm not sure how, quite how bold it is, but, you know, it's, it's a very positive policy that currency issuance obviously can be used for. What's the difference between a country like Germany doing that kind of a thing? as opposed to a country like Greece doing that same kind of a thing. Uh, and, you know, that kind of alludes to the power, the difference between the power of those countries and maybe the nature of those governments or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the question whether a, a, a country, so a government from a Eurozone country can spend or not, um, the only question that you have to ask yourself, will there be a buyer of last resort for those government bonds? Okay, so will the ECB buy German government bonds in the next crisis? Will they buy Greek bonds? If the answer is yes, well then you can understand that there's no, there's no limit of government spending in either of those countries. So of course the ECB is a supranational institution. So it's, it's unclear what kind of rules they will set up for the next crisis. But I think that in the last crisis, um, it was clear that this austerity policy stuff does not work at all, and that if you would do it again, the eurozone will break up politically also, as well as economically. It wouldn't fix anything. It would make European countries, they, be, they will become like the Balkans, uh, highly fragmented and easily to and easy to manipulate from the outside. I mean, think about China and, and the US, for example, as big powers. So that's not going to happen. So the European Central Bank has has in the last couple of years, I'm talking about the last 10 years, since Mario Draghi said, we will do whatever it takes to save the euro. The ECB has always said, we will make sure that the governments of those nation states in the eurozone can spend money if they need to. All of them. Okay, and Greece was a bit of an outlier in the beginning, and the first bond purchase programs did not apply to Greek bonds, but now there was no problem with Greece when the pandemic hit. So I'm pretty sure that the ECB will not let... Uh, any national government in the Eurozone stand out in the rain when the next crisis comes. But that's just my opinion. So it's, it's a political question. And of course, it depends on the people who are at the ECB, because the ECB doesn't, they don't take orders from anybody. So the ECB board, they can really decide what to do. So it all depends on people at the central bank. Of course, that's not nice. So it would be better to say, to, or to, to create new European rules and say that the ECB should be a dealer of last resort for government bonds from Euro, Eurozone countries uh, at all times. And I've argued in favor of that in my last paper. So that's that's where we should go, I guess. And then, of course, the next step would be to add full employment targets to, to replace the deficit limits and say, look, the problem is not that governments are overstepping somehow, it's, it's that they're not spending enough to have full employment. Um, it's either this or we go full European if there's a political majority for that, but I don't think that there is right now. So that's um, that's a topic to discuss for to discuss another time, I guess.
1: Okay, um, so just kind of a final comment. And actually, I believe it's true that not being a lender of last resort to Greece was a threat used to rein in Greece. By the uh, the Euro Eurocent- the European Central Bank or something to that effect to keep them in line.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, it's it's of course a little bit too much to give this kind of discretionary power to a central bank to th- to have the ECB threaten countries like Greece or Ireland. I cut I cut back your liquidity or I completely shut it down if you don't what if you don't do what I say. And that, that is what has happened. And it's of clear clear misuse of power on behalf of the ECB. Uh, Ireland was kind of forced to nationalize its, its banking system. And I think also Greece was threatened with reforms. So yeah, th- I think that is now behind us in Europe. Uh, I don't think that this will happen again. There will not be any more troika, not be any more group of of politicians trying to impose reforms from outside of the country. I think that one, one lesson that was learned in the last crisis is that sovereignty of, of the countries in the Eurozone has to be respected. Otherwise, okay. um, you you get into big troubles and the Greeks blaming the Germans, for example, um, because through the ECB, the Germans dictate the Greeks what to do in terms of reforms. And of course, then the other way around, the Germans accusing the Greeks of wasting money and, and not playing according to the rules. I mean, these, this kind of framing has created this, this, these right-wing parties all over Europe, also inside Germany. So it it was a complete mistake to, to start this kind of, of fight nation against nation. And I think the European policymakers have understood by now that that we cannot afford to have this happen again. Um, otherwise, we will have countries turning over to, to fascist governments uh, and, and probably creating lots of trouble for, for everybody.
1: Right. Okay. All right. Great. So let's leave it there. Um, thank you. I, you know, I have actually a lot more questions, which I think is a good thing. I think. Uh, I think. I look forward to listening to this for the editing process. Um, thank you for all your time. Um, I look forward to meeting you in person for the first time in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm very excited to go to the the summer session. Um, I believe your your talk is generally going to be on your on MMT and the euro. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when are you know when are you what are your plans what are your basic plans when are you heading in um
0: i'm arriving on on june 5th and um fifth because i will stay um i'm invited also to a workshop by by pavlina which will also take place at bart college so it's the tuesday before the sunday that i'm gonna be Ah. teaching at at the levy institute um so i will be hanging out a week at at the bart college and um on sunday i present and then on monday i go back to new york city and i fly to south carolina i'm going to visit a friend of mine and i'm going to stay there for for a couple of days and then i come back on on friday i think and then i'm going to fly from from newark oh. on saturday
1: okay so you're you'll be at you will be overlapping from friday to sunday i think you said you you present on sunday yeah. um i I'm heading in on, on, on early Friday. I, you okay. like, you're not supposed to get there until four, but I'm choosing to get in like like lunchtime. I, I want to like ride, just like ride around. I'm bringing my bicycle and my guitar and I just yeah. want to just like relax when I get there. Yeah, so, yeah. Dirk, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, I wish you a safe trip to the United States and I will see you,
0: I think, on the 11th or something like that. Yes. Thanks for having me, Jeff. See you in a bit.
1: for this show is by RecTech. You can find RecTech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my windows desktop at that point i crudely process the audio in audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the reaper digital audio workstation activist mmt is hosted by libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Dirk Entz. Last week in part one, Dirk described his journey from a PhD in mainstream economics to discovering and accepting, NNT. Today, I ask Dirk questions circling around his new co-authored piece for the Gower Initiative called Raising Interest Rates is Like Blowing Up the Garden to Weed It. It starts with some very basic questions about how and why The central bank maintains the stability of the payment system i then ask the specific mechanics of the central bank's raising its overnight target rate and how it ultimately results in millions more becoming unemployed and therefore more exploitable i continue to struggle with these concepts but after this conversation i feel like the questions have become more clear if you like what you hear then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions like in last week's episode with Dirk, my previous interview with John Harvey and my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmnt. Every little bit helps a little bit and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Dirk Entz. Enjoy.